Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome to episode, am I right? 53, Alex? 53. 53. Of the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex and Brian. That's him. I'm Brian. Uh, a little subdued today. I don't know if people can see. I've got my uh, giraffes on my shirt. Uh, and this is in honor of my mother who died exactly eight years ago today. Uh, and we miss you, mom. And uh, because I couldn't discern from our stories what our characters would be drinking, I decided to go with my mom's drink, vodka tonic. Well, uh, muzzle and um, uh, salute to your mother. I am having some Sauvignon Blanc, and uh, I figured that's what Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte would be having. And uh, I am having this uh, particularly from the Jordan estate in South Africa, not only because, Brian, you and I have had this sure. um, yeah, yeah. At, at High Timber when we recorded the great uh, live episode, but also because when phylloxera struck in uh, Europe, uh, the last true vines that had older heritage uh, than our own, because we were basically cleared out, um, were the South African vines. And certainly in the Loire, which is now famous for its whites uh, and is uh, uh, was once a, a, a place that was famous for its reds, was destroyed for um, for reds uh, for the foreseeable. Um, they are, are now a tremendous place for Sauvignon Blanc. And I was thinking about what what's French what's French wine really famous for, and I thought why not go back to the beginning? So Sauvignon Blanc yeah. for me. Cheers. Fair. Cheers. Cheers to your mother. Couple things about that. Thank you. So one, I forgot to explain why giraffes matter. My mom used to collect giraffes, like figurines. Any place you'd go in the world, she wanted you to bring a giraffe. So that's why the giraffes. Secondly, hey, nice South Africa time. I uh, know, right? Uh, or at least Malawi. I don't know. I don't know what where all those uh, various safari locations are. But also, uh, I think it's fitting. I think if if uh, if our protagonist um, Jean Baptiste Bernadotte were at t- High Timber with us. Uh, a couple of months ago, he probably would have enjoyed the Jordan, uh, Jordan I Chardonnay. I think he'd have smashed a few down before going on, <laughs> taking on the throne for another country. And then making sure that he couldn't do a second episode because uh, he was right. too drunk. But I have a question, though. So this um, plague is not the right word, but the the the, the blight that wiped out the vines in Philoxera. Europe. Yeah. Yeah. This was the late 1800s, yes? Yeah. Okay. So I, I think I'm talking about the same thing. I'm ashamed to say... For the first time in my life, I went to the beaches at Normandy in 2018. It was right before mm-hmm. the pandemic. And our guide was this, you know, great Frenchman who I don't think they probably put them on as guides unless they have a pretty favorable view of the outcome of World War II, which hopefully everyone does. But he said to us on the little tram ride over to the beach, he said, hey, uh, I don't know if you know, but America saved Europe three times. So there's World War One. It's World War II. And then there's when we had this blight of all of right. our vines and you sent a bunch over from Napa Valley. Right. And uh, and so the new world rescued the old world for uh, for wine. And here I am now drinking a be- actually beautiful Sauvignon Blanc. My wife is allergic to Sauvignon Blanc, so I can only really have it on, on my own or where I, when I'm out. And uh, that may sound like a, a, a silly, but it's true. She comes up with that in hives when she has 
Savvy B, so I have to have it on my own. Uh, but you're right. Um, the new world has saved the old on several occasions, not just in wars. And I will have to say, uh, uh, but in the right back at you category, once again, cheers to your government for leading the way on long-range missiles to Ukraine. Much um, obliged. Not the first time that you've stiffened America's spine. I hope it works also this time. Well, Slava Ukraini, and uh, as some of our uh, listeners made, hey, hey, we have two new uh, uh, listeners and followers who accosted me today, Caroline and Pia, uh, who were saying how much uh, they were looking forward to listening to uh, this episode. And I just want to mention that I'm wearing a uh, I'm wearing a wristband for Ukraine, uh, which uh, I know is the kind of the least one can do. Except I'll point out this is uh, the, the piece of metal that I've got on my arm is from the last slab of steel that came off uh, the um, rolls in Mariupol before yeah. they had to shut down uh, when the invasion happened. And they cut them up into 3,000 pieces and to various friends of Ukraine, they sit on our wrists. And uh, I'll wear this until the people of Ukraine are free. Yeah, well, good on you. Cheers. I don't know if I can still get one, but if I can, I will. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, of those who serve, I went to an excellent conference uh, over the last week in Miami with our pal Mike Hurley, who I think was our yeah. second or third guest. Yeah. And uh, and I joined the board of a group that does this. For those of you who can't watch the video, they defend uh, U.S. veterans in court. So basically uh, what studies have shown, not surprisingly, given all the history of PTSD, even if it was never called that, is that uh, veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan, just like Vietnam, just like World War II, tend to come in contact with the criminal justice system a lot more than other people. So Same these two lawyers, yeah. So these two lawyers in Minnesota started this foundation to help them. And it started out as they just would go into court and defend them, something I know, Alex, you've done uh, as, yeah. a, as a defense uh, a lawyer. Um, but now they've started this effort to pass in every state in the United States legislation, which directs prosecutors and judges to consider the service uh, and the potential combat fatigue, PTSD of veterans in the sentencing. And uh, it's remarkable. And I just joined their board. So uh, I'll, we'll put them in the show notes and cheers to them. Well, I wish you and them all the best endeavors. Cheers. Let's tell a story. Now on to the story. So I, Alex and I, uh, you know, we occasionally talk behind the scenes. You guys can't be in on everything. And we realized, unless you pay extra, that's coming later. And never mind. Um, uh, we realized we had never actually told the OG of the OG. So our viewers and listeners will know that I now refer to Lessons from History, Volume 1, which I'm showing on camera, as the OG. And uh, the second uh, uh, unimaginably named volume uh, as Volume 2. And this is the first story from Volume 1, which we have talked about on the podcast in the in the context of how alex you came to start this endeavor in the first place never yeah. told the story and we're going to resolve that now and we're going to bracket it with the most recent story take it away thank you very much first story i ever told on twitter i didn't know if i was going to do five of these stories i was just sitting in lockdown and i wanted to tell a couple of stories on twitter and uh fast forward book deal another book two books podcast who knows what's uh, next? Feature um, film. This indeed. This is the story of Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, uh, who joined the French army when his ambitions of following 
his father into the law, a noble profession, as you know, Brian, um, was stymied by his father's death. At the time, of course, you needed support to um, become a lawyer in your first years of practice. And he was, uh, the annals record, a brilliant soldier. He gained rapid advancement in the French military. And the French military was very busy at the time yeah. in the, the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he married, this is relevant, he married a woman who had previously been engaged to Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon had a brother, older brother, uh, who got married as well. And he, Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, married the sister of the woman who married Napoleon's brother, who had previously mm. been married, to, who had previously been engaged in Napoleon. The Bonapartes like to keep things tight. Uh, of course, he, <laughs> yeah, he asked his uh, brother Joseph, yeah, go be king of Naples. No, no, I've changed my mind. Go be king of Spain. Um, so you can <laughs> understand this is relevant because that Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte's supposed connection to Napoleon comes into people's minds later in the war of the fourth coalition um the coalitions were the various people fighting against france at different times and i think it's very flattering uh to the to the french that this is how we had a numbering system when you think yeah. about it france against everybody else france yeah. against all comers were dispatched and who's who's next there were seven of these in, in all um the last, of course, ending with Waterloo and exile for Napoleon. Anyway, this is the War of the Fourth Coalition. And the Prussians, famous fighters and famously successful normally, under Blucher, were taking a beating at the hands of the French. And Blucher was one of the most fated and decorated German-Prussian officers of all time, uh, nicknamed Marshal Forward uh, by his men in honour of his aggressive fondness for uh, advancing such tendencies, I must tell you, Brian, were not in evidence at the Battle of Lübeck. So, 1806, Battle of Lübeck, Jean uh, Bernadotte and co. catch Blucher's retreating army and absolutely marmalize uh, them. And um, reflecting the... That's not a good thing, right? It's more than it's decimating. Not a, it, it's not a good thing. It's chewing them up. Yeah. And and reflecting the everyone against the French um, trend of the era, there were some Swedes uh, fighting at Lubeck alongside the Prussians against the French. And uh, our friend Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte and his men captured them and treated them courteously and treated them well. He also tried in vain to try to treat Lubeck well uh, and failed as his men sacked it. But uh, the point was he treated his captives well. And uh, he, the French had better and more pressing things to do than keep a clutch of Scandinavians captive. So, you know, Ikea awaits for you at home. Off you go. <laughs> um, Bernadotte release, releases these Swedes and these uh, Swedish noblemen um, poodle back home to uh, the Nordics. And they head home to a problem. The Swedish king was one, airless, and two, very rapidly going senile. So they asked themselves who should be the next king. And you know, the veterans of the Battle of Lübeck uh, had an outsized, you know, heroes of, of Sweden, outsized role in this discussion. And they said, well, hey, how about that nice Frenchman who was so decent to us very recently at the Battle of Lübeck? Showed some leadership. He's show he was decent to us. We liked him. He was he's obviously close to the Emperor Napoleon. That couldn't hurt. Why don't we make him our king? 
And so it was that a Frenchman came to be ushered onto the throne of Sweden. And I, one of the reasons I find this fascinating, the house of Bernadotte reigns in Sweden to this day. Yeah. Right. The house of Bonaparte burned very bright, but it burned very quickly. Mm-hmm. And within a couple of generations, it was for all purposes of, of ruling France, was extinct. Uh, so the lesson I told, it was the very first story I told um, mm-hmm. in my Twitter stories and in the book. What's the lesson you can take from the story? Well, when you've got the whip hand, sometimes it pays to be nice and people remember it. And this is a lesson I believe to be applicable beyond one's behavior to defeated 19th century Swedish minor nobility. Um, and, and the story deserves a, a postscript. And it is this. Um, Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte was crown prince for a while. But as the uh, king of Sweden was well and truly gone by the time of his appointment in 1810, uh, he was really running things behind uh, the scenes and, uh, and quickly became king. And what did the newly Swedish crown prince do? He took his new country to war against France. <laughs> <laughs> what can one say? Uh, the man had a land. Uh, that's well, the first story from Lessons from History. This is this is the first time, last time, I believe I'll ever quote Donald Rumsfeld. But to paraphrase him, uh, you don't go to war against the country you want. You go to war against the country you have. Uh, oh, man. Right. Uh, so cool story. Uh, very interesting that it launched your um, adventure that I've been fortunate enough to join. And we've talked about <clears throat> how that happened. I wonder in the... Uh, in the grand annals of the two volumes of lessons from history and what you've put out since, um, you gotta, you gotta, I think, rate the turning of the son from Sao Paulo against his father in Brazil as, as the biggest pivot. Right. But is this the second, would you say? Yeah, I think it is not least because of course his wife was still married to Napoleon's brother. (laughs) Right. right. Well, sorry, sorry. His wife was still the sister of the woman who was married to Napoleon's brother. They were still they were still family. They yeah. was so I always think it's it's interesting. So my wife's brother is married, and so that's my brother-in-law. But his wife is nothing to me. People yeah. will often refer to that person as sister-in-law. In law, even though you have all manner of first cousins, second cousins, third cousins, twice removed, that is actually somebody who's nothing to you. Right. But but in that Napoleonic era, the person who is the husband or your wife's sister is yeah, that's a pretty close tree, especially yeah. if you served with Napoleon, who was the right. brother of that person. I mean, remarkable pivot. He was one of Napoleon's foremost generals. So yes, I think probably the second biggest pivot. Yeah, only thing that would have eclipsed it is if um, I'm going to say Thorgans because I can't remember his name. If the Viking brother would have turned on his English brother at uh, the pre-battle, uh, which he did. That, that was my that was my brother. I think is one yeah. of uh, the saddest stories we've told, uh, but I, I like it. Uh, I like it very much. Good. Well, let's let's we're going to get to we're going to bookend this episode because that's the oldest uh, yeah. story, and then we're going to get to the newest story. But let's talk for a second as we sit here in uh, mid-May, May 17th of 
2023 about about Ukraine. Uh, I opened the show thanking your government for leading the way again on a, a new class of weapons. It seems to me highly likely that by the time we release another episode, the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive will have begun. Um, as we sit here, the news over the weekend is that the uh, hypersonic missiles that Vladimir Putin said were um, unstoppable, six of them uh, uh, reportedly were stopped uh, over Kiev by U.S. Patriot missile systems. Where do you see this now? You've always been a little more pessimistic, I think, than I, I have. I've always been a little more hopeful that we won't blow ourselves well, up. Where do you see it? No, well, I want the Ukrainians to win, of course, mm. and I want them to prevail. <clears throat> In a way, so the, the pessimistic people are the people that when this um, terrible, unjustified, unlawful uh, act of aggression by Putin, this invasion uh, of a European country began. The uh, pessimistic people were the people who said, Ukraine's going to lose. They're going to have right. to roll over. They're going to have to give up. Uh, they're going to have to surrender half their country, whatever. Uh, the whole country is going to be run by Russia. Um, those are the pessimistic people. I've never thought that. I, uh, I may be more pessimistic than you in this. I think that um, I admire more than I can say. I think Zelensky is a hero for our age, and I admire the Ukrainians who continue their fight. I don't think that in any settlement that may be forthcoming in our lifetimes, um, the Ukrainians will get Crimea back. And, and that is regarded as pessimistic by Ukraine, who, who maintain with some validity that they should have territorial integrity and, and right. have their, their whole country back. But beyond that, I don't think I fall into the too pessimistic box. I do fall into the fear of the madman box. I fall into the fear that uh, Putin, um, as he feels the walls of failure closing around him, will uh, be desperate. And desperate people do desperate things. And we mustn't forget that he has a, an arsenal, albeit aging, around him yeah. that can do terrible harm to the world. In that regard, I, I happily embrace the term pessimist because I can, uh, or cynical, you know, I'm a cynic. I, I, I am a cynic uh, in, in that I think that before Putin is or can be removed, he might do terrible things. And therefore, um, in some ways, a slowing down of the conflict, albeit what's happened this last couple of weeks with the with the missiles into kiev kiev is absolutely terrible um a slowing down of the conflict is to be welcomed because it gives people in russia more of a chance to remove that leader before he does something appalling in a crisis uh, but i'm not sure i'm that pessimistic i continue to think that ukraine can win and um, there are plenty of people in mainland europe who have for some time been urging ukraine to make in my view unacceptable compromises yeah, 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 in its yeah. territorial integrity looking at you germany yeah uh, uh and other and others yes no that's right so uh on another podcast i do that does not involve drinking uh we interviewed the deputy director of the central intelligence agency a week or so ago and they have now this is mind-blowing to me having served uh, during the cold war in that agency they they have a telegram the cia has a telegram channel urging Russians to report to the Central Intelligence Agency on Putin and things Russia. Fantastic. And, I welcome yeah, that. If it's secure, it's amazing. Yeah. 
Right. I, and I'm sure they've dotted their I's and crossed their T's and, and adapted to the technology, but it's it's a new world when they're openly recruiting. <laughs> I got to tell you, though, I the reason that you put those caveats around it is that for anyone with experience of the Soviet era, people interested in doing that and motivated to do that will be deeply concerned about the instruments of, of their course. state closing around them and not just for them, their families and, and making them suffer for their interest in freedom. Uh, recently, there's an outlet in the UK. You won't believe it, but you know, we, there's a relatively mainstream outlet in the UK saying, well, people say, you know, communism failed, but look at the great success that, that existed for a while in East Germany. Oh, and Jesus. I'm, I'm serious. And, and I and I had to point out to them that uh, it was so successful that they had to build a wall around it to stop people getting out and put people on that wall to shoot you if you tried to escape from that success right yeah. so the, people have a real lack of historical awareness on this side of the uh old yeah. uh, iron, iron curtain but believe you me and i spent a fair bit of time in russia and the eastern european states people on that side of the old iron curtain do not forget the power no. of the surveillance state they do not forget the power of those who are able to surveil you and your family and will execute retribution upon them if they catch you. And I can well believe that there are people who would um, be willing to talk to the CIA or whoever about uh, what Putin's getting wrong, but feel they shouldn't. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's also generational, right? So right. my daughters are 24 and 22 and I'm not going to speak for them although it wouldn't matter because they've declared to me they will never listen to my podcast. But uh, they, you know, when they hear the word socialism, what they think of is gentle old grandpa Bernie Sanders who wants to pay off all their student loans and give them universal health care. And they, they just have no, I know I sound like grumpy old man from Saturday Night Live now, but they have no conception of what an actual socialist communist dictatorship actually is. None. Right. And I don't think they're being taught that. Right. And uh, that's the case in my country, too, to a certain degree. Albeit, it's very interesting. The Cold War is once again a rich uh, seam of narratives and storylines for movies. Yeah. And I hope that that's, even if it's romanticized, and some of it's Ost kind of romanticism, mm -hmm. some of it's romanticizing what happened on the um, eastern side of that uh, great divide. I think that there's a good chance people understand the persecution through modern movies. Well, I hope you're right. And uh, as you said, Slava Ukraini, hopefully by the Love next Ukraine. time we, we connect, uh, we'll be deep into the counteroffensive. But we don't have time for that right now because we have to move on to the newest of the Alex Dean history stories, which you can't yeah. even buy in stores, people. You're only going to get it right here or on Twitter. On the Proceed. Hidden History Happy Hour. Uh, and actually, I've um, enlarged the story somewhat. Every single story that I told on Twitter, uh, and we are nudging 200 uh, yeah. now on, on Twitter, uh, but there are um, there's a clutch, I think, in the first volume, I think 10 stories, in the second volume, I think 10 or 15. Um, so we're well beyond, actually, 200. But in each one that I told on Twitter, it was improved and edited and corrected with help from people online and with uh, the benefit of hindsight when they went into the books. And that includes this one. So this is a slightly improved version from the story that I told on uh, Twitter. But this is the 199th 
gene history told on Twitter. And, wow. And well, Ryan, so so we're gonna have to have an occasion for the two hundredth. Don't 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 release it without me, pal. My friend, it will be possibly our next podcast. Um, and, and like a number of those that I've told, uh, this is a story about what might have been. Yeah. Uh, it's also, by the way, a story about grammar, uh, which I, as a, <laughs> the son of an English uh, teacher, enjoy. And this is told from Lady Victoria Weems, if that's helpful. Weems, okay. Pronunciation of Weems, W-E-M-Y-S-S, pronounced Weems. And Lady Weems, Lady Victoria, was the last surviving godchild of Victoria, and she lived to 104 uh, years young. She worked uh, during the Great War, uh, the First World War, in a munitions factory, uh, which uh, she told people she enjoyed enormously. And she was a woman of great style and told after her centenary year uh, that she was an inspiration to all who knew her. Uh, she said, uh, quote, that's very kind but I feel bound to say that I've made absolutely no effort. <laughs> it's a wonderfully stylish thing to say. But anyway, uh, reminiscing about <laughs> life before the conflagration that changed Europe's social and political order forever, she would talk about the frequent visits paid by the European elites of one country to another. Constant um, trips between the related families of, of um, uh, European royalty. And one such visit that I want to mention was made by the Archduke Ferdinand to her family home, Welbeck Abbey, in 1913. Um, the Archduke had spent a week with George V of my country at Windsor. And then, because he'd previously hosted Lady Victoria and her father, who was the sixth Duke of Portland, at his home in Austria, he returned the trip and he went to see them at Welbeck Abbey, uh, which is in Nottinghamshire in my country. So he went north to Nottinghamshire for some shooting. This is and Robin think, Hood country, yeah? Uh, well, it's a bit, yeah, it's, yeah, okay, it's not in Sherwood Forest, but it's kind of in that ballpark. I and remember I think, something about Nottingham from that story. It, yes, indeed. And I think we can all agree that uh, uh, the Archduke Ferdinand later came to know uh, a great deal about yeah. shooting about being shot. Uh, anyway, um, Lady Victoria describes the moment of interest very uh, um, calmly in her um, uh, the messages she left for history. Uh, she said that during a shoot, and the Ar Archduke Ferdinand was a, m a mad pot hunter, he used to love going out um, shooting, and people who follow me on Twitter have sent me pictures of... Um, his hunting lodges decorated with the heads of all the various beasts he'd killed. Uh, so he used to love going out shooting. And uh, Lady Victoria said that um, during the shoot that they were on out in the grounds outside Welbeck Abbey in pursuit of whatever it was animal, um, the ground was slippery and a cartridge went off and the shot just missed him. Mm -hmm. And I, I find this formulations why i said there's a story about grammar uh, brian yeah. i find and you will too as a, as a lawyer i find this formulation very uh, of language very yes. interesting my time at the criminal bar taught me that when people put things in the passive they are normally passing over something they've done themselves mistakes yeah. were made e e exactly so let me give you an example we were in the yard and there was a knife and he got stabbed. Mm -hmm. What that means is, I went to the yard, 
with a knife and I stabbed him. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. that's what that telephrase actually means. So for a moment, when I read this from Lady Victoria's recounting of the incident, I naturally wondered if the young Lady Victoria had taken a pot shot at the Archduke herself. Um so I regarded that as unlikely. And I then assumed that she was being polite about her guest and the Archduke had slipped and almost shot himself. But what actually happened, as I did a bit of research, what actually happened was this. A loader, which is the guy who follows you behind and, and loads your shotguns and gets ready for the next uh, bird that you're going to massacre. Um, a loader behind the Archduke had slipped in the mud and... Uh, you know, contemporary firearm safety classes, perhaps not being the total guarantee of safety that we now, of course, know yeah. them to be. Uh, it, the gun he was carrying went off. You, so someone slips down, the gun goes off upwards. You're following the person you're going behind. This can be very bad news. Let's just say it's a Dick Cheney situation. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the, oh, the, you went the, there. Okay, the, all right. The, the, the gun... Uh, the person's carrying goes off behind the person he's loading it for. You are necessarily close. It went went off right behind them. And both barrels in this example, Brian, is not no it's not a mere expression. Right. Both barrels went off by the Archbishop, by the Archduke's head. Um unlike later historians of the incident who just who make clear and um, how close the Archduke came to death. Uh, Lady Victoria was therefore likely passing over the details of who did what <laughs> to whom in order to assigning blame. I think this is to her credit, right? In order to assigning blame to this nameless loader who was someone hired for the day to go and be on the shoot. Point of the story being, the First World War was famously caused, most proximately at least, yeah. by the Archduke's assassination in Sarajevo in 1914. But in order to be there, to be assassinated, it was necessary that his head had not been blown off in a freak yeah. accident by someone slipping behind him in the mud of yeah. Welbeck Abbey in 1913. And the whole world might therefore have been very different if an unlucky loader on a Nottinghamshire shoot in, uh, had been even more accident-prone. Yeah, well, yeah, you are you are touching on my wheelhouse now, my friend. So, uh, if we if if this podcast ever ends for whatever reason, which I don't anticipate, uh, we will be doing a science fiction podcast because endless um, random coincidences slash time travel stories uh, fascinate me. So, on the one hand, yeah, if he had been killed at that estate a year ahead of time. He wouldn't have been around in Sarajevo to get assassinated. But who's to say some other, you know, royalty wouldn't have been in that same cart in the same wheel? I, look, house, I believe you know? the first I believe the first of war would still have happened. I believe that it was still the the the, uh, the die was loaded, that the um uh the forces of, the forces of international alliances and so forth was such that there would have been another trigger to the powder kick but would it have been at the same time would it be in the same outcomes would um right. people have had the same time to prepare those things are very unclear to me 
So this fact that that's a, a very big what if in history. Yeah. Well, and and I, you know, as as our viewers and listeners will know, I, I was very proximate to pre-9-11 and post-9-11 and right. uh did a lot of work with the 9-11 Commission. And, you know, one of the big uh fights, I guess, between the Democrats and the Republicans on the commission was, you know, should Clinton have authorized a more robust kill program against bin Laden in the 90s? Should Bush have moved faster? When he came into office, uh, my 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 conclusion is some version of that attack would have happened no matter what, because the rest of the world were allowing twelve thousand new jihadis to be built in Afghanistan every month. So would it have been you know airliners on September eleventh, two thousand one, if things had been different? Maybe not, but something. Like you can't build up that force of, of, um, of jihadi activity without something happening. So would we have delayed it a month or two? I don't know, but we weren't going to prevent it. Is my view. I think that's well, certainly in the first world war context. I think that's almost certainly right. The great powers were so lined up against one another that it was extremely likely that they would have, in the end, uh, kicked off. But. One of the fascinating what ifs is if it was a year or two later, would this side have attracted this or that other satellite state? Yeah. If it was a year or two later and you fast forward to that period in the conflict, would the machine gun yeah. have been that definitive weapon as it was? Because the point about the First World War is that offensive technology for that literal 18 month period was so far behind defensive technology and the mm. ability to defend trenches. That is to say, your ability to advance is stymied so much more by the ability of defenders to fire machine gun fire right. um, across a broad field. That defensive abilities mean that you will be stuck in mud for months at a time when you yeah. would otherwise have advanced before tanks are, uh, uh, are advanced sufficiently. If you fast forward the beginning of the First World War to 1916 instead of 1914, it might have been an extremely different conflict. There might have been fewer deaths. Trenches might have been far less definitive than they were. Tank technology might have been um, far more successful, and therefore you could have had rapid advancement in the way that the um, period of the day uh, denied you. And gassing, the other technology uh, concerned, might have been far better defended against, particularly mustard gas, with masks, um, which yeah. by the end of the war, we'd, we'd done much better in, on both sides. We'd done much better at, at developing. It could have been a completely different context, uh, conflict. And therefore, this loader's accident in 1913 in Nottinghamshire was fascinatingly definitive in its yeah. failure to blow off the Archduke's head. Um <laughs> there's a there's a great scene in the man from the high castle um yeah. where um one of the protagonists uh, without spoiling uh, philip k dick who does great uh, yeah, alternative yeah. histories uh, one of, one of the protagonists kills an unambiguous good guy to prevent worse things from happening and uh, Juliana, she, she, her body count is so high in the Man from the High Castle, I'll give away nothing uh, by saying <laughs> that Ju 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 Juliana killed somebody. And um, you look at that and you think, and she, she kills a good guy to save the life of a bad guy. Yeah. And 
that's the kind of in order to prevent worse things from happening right. thereafter. And that is the kind of conundrum we face with the Archduke, because as far as I know, history regards the Archduke Ferdinand as someone who was basically not to blame for the First World War. He hadn't done terrible things. He didn't want genocide. He didn't want trench warfare. He hadn't set out to persecute people. But if he could have been killed a year earlier, the whole continent's history could have been different. I just, I'm aware I'm going on. So I'll just make one, one more point. The walls of English churches are decorated with the names of the flower of a generation of English youth uh, that were sacrificed in the most profligate era of the British army, uh, and at the Somme, at Passchendaele, and so forth. And who is to say if that one man's head hadn't been it had been blown off in Nottinghamshire on a perfectly normal? I don't know what they were shooting, partridges, um, <laughs> pheasants, pheasants. If he hadn't been a, a pheasant sacrifice, the whole future of England and, and therefore the continuity of a different English way of life might have been completely different. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's worth pondering. Also worth pondering is why in 2023 are the Ukrainians and the Russians still practicing trench warfare? It's kind of mind-blowing, honestly. Well, in the end, as um, and you and I have uh, talked about tanks and the technologies that combine them and, yeah. and, uh, and military conditions in landscapes and so forth, in the end, uh, there's only so much you can do with theory. And reality bites at a certain point. And I want to come into your country and you want to come into my country well, let's work it out. It sometimes uh, comes down to trenches. And uh, I just make the, the, the point that uh, the first real trench warfare wasn't between countries. It was within one. It was within your country. It was in the American Civil War between yeah. the Confederates and the Union. And uh, that was where brutal, awful uh, trench warfare was first. With, with yeah. And the, the interesting thing, I would date me to be flippant, there are many interesting things about that terrible conflict but one of the things that determined that conflict was that medical science which gained came leaps and bounds after yeah, it, yeah. was yeah. so far behind modern warfare ability to inflict wounds that in that conflict small wounds and middling wounds more yeah. often led to to death yeah. and to complete debilitation um and then fast forwarding to today where people can suffer terrible injuries on the battlefield and uh and be medevaced out and survive things that in the past would have led to death or at least permanent yeah but there's a but yeah but there's a flip side to that and i'm i won't pull my uh veterans defense uh textbook out again but the flip side to that is that you now have exponentially more survivors of war than you would have had 50 years ago, but they're severely damaged. And now they're back in society in ways that they wouldn't have been in 1947 because they'd be dead. And we've, we have not, we have not um, calculated how to deal with them and we need to. Um, Same here. We have a far higher percentage of um, homeless people in the UK who are veterans, as you would call them, 
yeah. uh, people who've served our country than any normal indices of uh, population would suggest. I think um, we do too. Well, yeah. I can't think of any way, uh, dear listeners and viewers, to spin that in a positive sense other than, you know, if you have an ability to help uh, a veteran uh, in your community, do it. And uh, we'll so see you next I, time. I, I have a more positive note to Okay, end do it. Which yeah, yeah, is yeah. that uh, Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte's uh, story tells us that uh, sometimes you've got to seize the main chance and uh, and your descendants may thank you for it. At the time, going from being a marshal underneath Napoleon to yeah. being the king of Sweden would have seemed a downgrade. History shows us it was an incredible move and your great-great-grandchildren now on the throne of Sweden in that case, <laughs> may thank you for it. Still in power. Cheers. See you next Cheers, time. Cheers, my friend. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team, of Jeremy Corr, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.